we're talking to Andrew Powell, a leading barrister at Four Paper Buildings, who practices in family law. Um, he's widely recognised for his expertise in children. He's also the author of A Practical Guide to Law in Relation to Surrogacy. So hello, Andrew. That introduction was really brief because um, my first question to you is, who would you say you are? To be with you both. Um, who would I say I am? I am, without giving my age away, <laughs> a mid to late 30s black barrister, gay from Birmingham, son of immigrants. Uh, my parents are Jamaican. Um, I, I think I, I'm somebody who, who, who's, a, who's a bit of a doer. So I, I like to go out and just do things. I've always been somebody who wanted to, I suppose, without sounding cliche, trying to try and make a difference in society. And I thought that the law was a good tool to achieve that. So I went off to law school, became a barrister. And I think that I'd like to think that I'm, I'm helping, helping people find solutions to their problems. So I think when you ask the question like, who, who, are, who are you? It's, it's such a multifaceted question because there's so many dimensions to somebody's identity. And there are so many things that intersect about you know race, class, um, sexual sexual identity, all that kind of stuff, and I think they're all parts of who I am, but they don't they don't necessarily define define me. Um, it's just a kind of a, a rounded picture of part of who I am. So I hope that kind of makes sense. Our second question is: What are you proud to be in particular? And I think what we're getting at is outside of, well, maybe outside of the law, maybe inside of the law, but. Generally speaking, <laughs> what am I proud of? Um, I mean, from a from a personal level, I think I'm I'm I mean I'm very proud of myself. Like I'm I'm quite a open person who I who I who I think can, it can be a role model for other people. Um, there aren't many people who who have a similar background to me who you know, went to state school, uh, didn't go to Oxbridge made it to the bar, doing fairly well. I think I'm proud that I can be seen as a, as a, I don't want to say beacon sounds a bit too, a bit just like I'm putting myself too high, but as, a, as somebody who can be, inspire others. And I think there's a res responsibility um, that I have. I, I think I have a responsibility to try and kind of pass the baton to encourage others to do what, what I have done. And I, I would say I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, I, I'm also quite proud and particularly in the last decade or so, I'm really proud to say that I'm the son of immigrants. Now, my parents, my father came here when he was really young in the 50s. So he didn't really know life in Jamaica. He, he just knows being a kid in, in Birmingham, effectively. But now he, and he's now in his 70s. And my mum came here in her 20s in the, 70, in the 1970s. And I think there's always been a... a a kind of ambivalence, regrettably, in this country towards immigration. And I am very happy and proud to say I am the son of immigrants and we make a huge contribution to this country and we make it a better place. And I think there's been a, a change in the narrative, sadly, um, and quite obviously, in my view, in the last decade towards that, and it's got worse. And I think, therefore, it's important to stand out and be heard, stand out and be heard and say, look, you know, you've got nothing to be afraid of. You know, immigrants make a contribution to, to this country and I'm proud to be part of that 
diaspora. But that being said, I think one of the things that I'm always a bit reluctant to, to, to tap into is that there's almost this kind of notion that if you're um if you have if you have a immigrant background, that you have to be, you have to almost justify your existence here as though there's this kind of dichotomy between what's a good immigrant and a bad immigrant and frankly that's rubbish I think that I think you have to be careful not to fall into that trap because it sounds like well you know you know we shouldn't we shouldn't um we shouldn't be critical or derogatory towards them because they're contributing to society in in x way but it shouldn't make a difference I mean I'm here legitimately it doesn't matter what I do um, but I think that kind of rich contribution in general that you get from immigration is really well seen actually this summer in the World Cup, in the, was it the World Cup or the European Final. I mean, this shows you how much of a football fan I'm not. But a big <laughs> football competition that happened this summer. The Euros. Um, Euro 2020. Euros, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the Euros. Um, <laughs> demonstrated, I think there's a really good campaign. Um, I think they're in the chat, but a really good campaign that said, you know, without immigration, the English football team would have about four or five players, or perhaps fewer. Um, I think that's a really good way of highlighting that there is a, a rich contribution through immigration, and I'm proud to be part of that history. Um, I think, and I think you know, coupled with that, again, you know, my dad is a, a you know, a, a child of Windrush, as are his my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, who who came to the UK in the late forties, early fifties. And the way in which things have happened, you know, things, things that have happened, the scandals, frankly, that have happened in the last you know, decade or so, specifically in relation to Windrush, is a part of our history that we can't really ignore. And I think it's a silver lining to that whole tragedy, frankly, is that it's really highlighted what people have contributed to society. So I think that's a kind of a... And I'm proud to be, but I'm saying that I'm proud to be part of that history. That is a rich history, which I, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy about. I'm very happy to talk about it. Were you, were you ever shy? So at the beginning of your career at the bar, was that something you felt less able to talk about? Or were you just not aware of it in the same way that many of us just are kind of getting through all of the hurdles that coming to the bar involves? I think that's such a good question, because I think it's probably somewhere in between the two that, at the beginning, you just you're just focused on getting your head down and just getting on with it, and not really wanting to cause trouble, or just you know just not wanting to highlight anything. Just get in, get pupillage, get tenancy, try and get a practice, try and pay bills. Um, I don't think I was prohibited from doing it, but I just didn't feel I perhaps just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I think I suppose my journey, as it were, has coincided with a Amy coming of age, you know, being 13, 14 years cool, and that coincide, coinciding with a significant socio-political kind of shift. And so I think that's kind of enabled um, Black and minority ethnic people to be able to kind of sing, you know, sing their story and be proud of it. And I'd, I think if I was coming to a bar now, if I was you know, just being called as something people now, I think I'd be, it'd be much easier. And so I think things like Black Lives Matter have really facilitated this kind of cultural shift in a positive way, I think, um, to, to kind of basically enlighten people. Something a bit different. Um, 
what is your experience of allyship at the bar? I think when I started, I mean, allyship is really a word that hasn't, I mean, it's been around for a long time, I'm sure, but I don't think really the public consciousness of that word has really existed for long enough. And it's only really in the last couple of years that it's really come, come into fruition. And I think there's a recognition, for example, that there are lots of underrepresented people at the bar. There's been a recognition for that for a long time. And there have been steps that have been taken to try and adjust that imbalance. Steps, more steps need to be taken to, to readdress that. But, we, you know, things are happening. And I think for me, allyship is recognition of people who hold positions of power to try and change the system. And so I think, it, I think for me, I think the term has a profound interrelationship with privilege. And so often I think the easiest example, which I often say, you know, in you know, similar kind of forums like this, like talks like this, is that the best example I can give is if you're traveling on the tube or any mode of tra public transport, and you're in a, you're in a, well, it doesn't matter whether you're seated or, seated or standing, but perhaps if you're stand, standing and you see somebody who is less able than you, that maybe they're pregnant or maybe they're, they've got a disability and they're standing and they, and they look like they want a seat and you take that burden from them and say, do you want a seat? And they, they might, might say, no, I'm fine, but you can tell they want a seat. They look like they're really tired. They need a seat you can take that burden from them by asking somebody who's seated to say, would you mind giving a seat to this person? That for me is a really great way of contextualizing allyship, of being able to come together to take on somebody else's battle, to kind of share the, the burden. Because I think far too often people who are either underrepresented or, or marginalized or somehow disenfranchised feel they have to have the fight, not feel they have to, they, they have the fight. They don't have anybody to support them. So allyship is about trying to readdress that imbalance and getting somebody who's in a position of power to readdress that disequilibrium. And so I, and so I think at the bar, there's, a, there's a, a slowly a, a change in that. And one of the um, things that emerged recently, Charles and I were on a, a bar leadership course that began around about this time last year. And one of the one of the friends in the group I was in um, with some other people in our group started off a, a, a group called All Rise, which is all about trying to have allyship at the bar, to, to try and call out things that are happening that you see rather than just turning a blind eye to it. So things like you know, judicial bullying, calling those things out, or you know, really simple things actually, like you know, when we're in court, I don't have any dependence. And if, you know, if there's a, a court hearing that's going on till, till 4.30 and the judge says, well, actually, I think we need to sit till about 5.36. Most nights, that's probably not gonna be a problem for me because I, I, I can, that's fine. But my colleagues, you know, who I'm, who I'm against, they might have um, caring responsibilities and it's kind of almost having a uni unity to say, well, actually, judge, that's not great for, for, for all of us. So we're not, we're not doing this. Um, rather than me saying, well, actually, I can do it, and, and then making them feel like they're in a position that they have to kind of roll over and, and acquiesce to the request. So 
it's you know it's kind of showing sort of solidarity. So I think I think I think the things are changing um, at the bar in terms of allyship, but it's I think it can be there's more there's always there's always more to be done. Um, I often find for myself there's sort of a tension between wanting to be an ally but also perceiving myself to be performative in my allyship. Do you have any thoughts on that and how people can be better allies really? Performative is such a great word because it, it does often kind of feel like the sense of it's just being people just paying lip service to a particular action. I think it's got to have it's got to have meaning and some, I think most people, I mean, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I think people are fundamentally good, generally, is my view. I mean, I think you have to have that kind of belief system. Otherwise, you, it's difficult to function. And even in our jobs, you know, representing all sorts of people from all walks of life, I still have that fundamental belief that people are fundamentally good. And sometimes actions can be performative and people are just paying lip service. But in some respects, that's better than than nothing, because it starts a conversation. And again, it's something which I've thought about over the last 12 months about people paying lip service to particular actions. Would I rather than pay lip service to it or not? And so, for example, you know, I go into the high street and I see Sainsbury's has Black History Month placards, or I see that they've got pride uh, flags in Pride Month. I think to myself, well, if I actually, if I was, you know, a 17-year-old working in a supermarket, as I did, and I and it, they had pride, pride flags in Pride Month and a Black History Month thing in Black History Month, I might think actually, well, that's, I mean, it might be performative, but actually it feels a bit more inclusive than them, than them not having it. And it might generate some form of conversation. So I don't think it's it's ideal. And people need to move away from being performative and take it to the next level, which is, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and to actually implement change and sustainable change that is not just through, hey, we're doing Black History Month, but what does that actually mean? But actually doing it meaningfully. So I think it's it's you know it's it's the first gear, but the next the next gear is to actually implement change and not just not just to implement it, but to, to sustain it and to have an, a significant kind of impact rather than it just being we've got a placard that says Black History Month. So, you know, it's, it's a step, but it needs to go a bit further. Yeah. So, okay, this is my next question. What would you say to your younger self? Oh gosh, that, that almost feel, it feels like that kind of question on Drag Race when RuPaul gets to the final four about what would you say to your younger self? Um, <laughs> I, you know, just be you, be happy to be you and just do it. I mean, I think I always had, I mean, I was, I was bullied as a child, um, quite significantly, pretty much up until I was about 14, 15. And I, I never really had an easy time at school. So occasionally there were pockets where I had um, positive experiences, but, but on the whole, it was a very trying, horrible time. And I, had, I, I moved schools at one point because it was, it was that significant. And I was, I think, you know, from a mental health perspective of an 11 year old, I was pretty, pretty bad. And, you know, I'm very privileged. So I've got parents who were able to put in protective measures to who, you know, fought with the school to make sure that I got, you know, best kind of services and was protected, even though that wasn't always ha happening. Um, and by the time I got to like 14, 15, I, I, found, I found my groove and I found my, you know, my crew and I was a, a much happier young person. But I think 
if I could speak to me at say age 11, I would just say, you know, don't worry, it will be, it will be fine. And just be proud to be you. And I, I think actually, you know, the, the difficulty with all of that is in, and it becomes so apparent actually, particularly when you look at things like you know, homophobic bullying that I had quite significantly as a kid. And you look at the time era when this all happened, you know, post, you know, section 28, a kid going to school in the late 80s, early 90s. And it all makes sense now, historically for me, to see why the school was so ill-equipped to deal with those kinds of issues, because that wasn't that wasn't part of the, the cultural narrative to be like, we don't, you know, you don't, we don't, homophobic bullying is is a bad thing. But they just it just felt like it was like a hot potato which they couldn't really deal with. Like it would have been probably been easier for them to deal with racist bullies as opposed to homophobic bullies even though I didn't necessarily identify as gay as a, as a kid, but that was what the tenor of the bullying was about. And I think I would, you know, I would say it's going to be fine and you can do it. I mean, I think, I mean, that sounds really cliche. <laughs> I think a lot of us would probably say the same thing to our younger selves, but I think it, it's easy now with hindsight to say that because of course you get through it and you get to where you are now, but there are a lot of factors that obviously helped me along the way because I had supportive parents. Not everybody who goes through that experience has supportive parents. I I did. So that's, you know, I'm privileged in that sense to have that, to have, to have had that kind of supportive home life um, and, you know, supportive sibling, you know, all those kind of things that are factors which not everybody has. And so, you know, that's very specific to me, to me I suppose, as a, as a kid. The next question, which is, what does Black History Month mean to you? I think it's such a good question because it's so, it's in one sense it's really complicated, but also it's also kind of easy because I think on the one hand, um, Black History Month, I think Black people for, for such a long time, their history has been ignored and there's not really been much of a discussion about it. And if I look at kind of, or think about my kind of you know history curriculum at school black people don't really feature in it and it's almost as though they're forgotten about and you know you you ask somebody about you know who's a famous nursing nursing figure in in my house I would say we would say Mary Seacole because my mum's a nurse she's a Jamaican nurse and so I knew all about Mary Seacole but nobody knew who, who she was if I mentioned Mary Seacole um, and so you know that's a, a good example for example of somebody not perhaps having the same recognition as say a white counterpart such as Florence Nightingale who people would automatically know who she is and so I think it's a, a really good good opportunity to to readdress the, the disequilibrium to say that black people have contributed significantly to culture and society and there's a rich history of that that has sadly been ignored and so it's kind of a month of almost overload to try and readdress that imbalance. And so for me, I, th I think it's kind of, part of it's kind of set, set, setting the record straight, um, but also it's um, celebrating it as well. And I think, you know, I, I think most people kind of probably think that, you know, pre, pre the Second World War, black people didn't exist specifically in the UK which is obviously rubbish because they there were black people throughout history in the UK, um, you know, way back before 19, 
48, 49, when the Empire Windrush arrived at our shores. And I think that, that is just completely forgotten about. And I think it's, as I say, it's an opportunity to kind of readdress that imbalance. And even now, I don't think, I mean, I don't know, I don't have, I don't have children, so I don't know what the history curricula, curriculum is, but it seems to me that there's still a, an absence of um, acknowledgement. And I think specifically about Britain. So for example, I think in, in America, um, everybody knows about Rosa Parks, everybody knows about Martin Luther King, everybody knows, you know, there's so many um, black civil rights people, and also because it's reasonably recent, who people can identify with. But in the UK, we don't really have a similar history. And there are people there who aren't really acknowledged. And so I think for me, it's, it's, it's highlighting it. And it's, it's kind of drawing attention to a, a point of our history that is so relevant and so significant. And a lot of it is very unpleasant, actually. You know, a lot of it is very um, distressing for people to learn about slavery and the role that Britain had in the slave trade, quite significant. And we have to be honest about it and truthful about it. And we can't, we can't airbrush it, it happened. And there's a, there's a history to that, which is relevant to today. And I, as I say, I think, I think it's an opportunity to kind of you know, to readdress that and um, highlight it in more ways than it should. I mean, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to have it as a month. It would just, it would just be there naturally. I mean, that's the point. Yeah, both. <laughs> uh, it's a bit like pride. People say, well, why do we have to have pride? And, you, and then, you know, there's a you know, homophobic attack and people, you know, that's why we have pride. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar kind of thing with, with Black History Month. It's a bit like, well, why do we, why do we have why do we have Black History Month? And, and then you think of all these kind of racist things that happen, you know, in the last, you know, recently. Um, look at, you know, what, look at what happens every time a Black football player steps foot in, the, in an England shirt in another country, they get booed, they get called monkey, they have bananas thrown at them. Where is that coming from? And I think, you know, people need to have a kind of a, a better understanding of, of our history. And I think that's that's why, why it's so important. And you know what? I don't think I would have said that five years ago. There's a, there's a lot of things that I think have happened recently that have really shifted how I feel feel and think about things. And, you know, my dad played semi, semi-professional football as a 20-year-old. Um, and I remember him telling me as a kid, you know, we were, we were booed, we were called monkeys. We were, you know, all these things were happening in the 70s. And I think to myself, oh my God, it's 2021 and it's, you know, what, what's changed? Um, it's kind of, you know, how is that, how is that still a, a thing that, you know, it can happen in, in this country, not just, you know, people going to Hungary. It, it's happening here. And I think, as I say, it's, it's an opportunity to, to, to readdress the imbalance and celebrate positively Black history. Yeah, and I think one of the things you touched upon is why we're not learning perhaps as we could in schools and still I think the curriculum probably um, doesn't go as far as it could and should yeah, is yeah. I think you use the word empire and that's really difficult for people yeah, yeah. to come to grip that uh, well to, to really understand because people are very proud of the British empire and there are many things to be proud of as part of British history but um, I suppose with if you take the pride then you have to take the shame element with that as well 
Exactly. You can't, you can't have both. And I think it's that part of it that people are more reluctant to um, embrace or even not understand. They don't want to yeah. because, because of what, and it's not about making people feel guilty. It's really about knowledge. Um, totally. It's just about understanding. It's not yeah, about yeah. saying, well, you should feel terrible for this. Um, or I should feel guilty for this. Or it's it's just knowledge. It's understanding. I, so, I mean, I you know there were black people in Tudor England. Why don't we teach that at schools? Are exactly. we teaching it at school now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting actually. I I have been reading. I mean, it's quite apt this month, and I, I didn't I didn't time it for this month. But I've been reading um, a book by a well-known book. I think everyone will have heard of it. Called Black and British: A Forgotten History by David Osega, and it's mm-hmm. it's so enlightening. Um, and it's you know there's a whole load of kind of books that are. I think the first one for me was probably Rennie Eddie Lodge's book, uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, that I read a few years ago. Um, and I think, again, that was, you know, as you just said, there were Black people in Tudor Britain, but it's just not talked about. Nobody nobody acknowledges it. And as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a shame, pride kind of dichotomy. And it's just, it's acknowledgement of having an understanding. That's all, that's all we ask for. Obviously, being black and being gay is something that people need to talk about because your experience is very different to my experience. So I don't want to put you on the spot and we can edit all of this out if you want to. I, I Would you like to talk about, about that? I can preach about intersectionality for the next hour, so I'm delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, won't, I won't go on to the next hour. But no, I think it's a really important concept. And I think for those that don't aren't aware of it, you know, it, it was a concept that was you know um highlighted by an american professor i think kimberly crenshaw um back in the late 80s and it's all about these different parts of parts of uh, parts of an individual that cross over and i think patrick as you highlighted you know the experience of a white gay man is very different to that of a, a black gay man and um you know the spaces which you might occupy I might not feel as comfortable in as a gay black man um and I think you know Billy Porter said something recently um at the I think the Attitude Awards um where he basically said you know it, when he was growing up there was there wasn't there wasn't really anybody there wasn't anybody to kind of to look up to and I think there's, I mean again I have to be careful here because I think it's so difficult to, to talk about the black community because it's such a nebulous term when anybody uses anything that says something before community because it's just like how does that even work but I think among um black people there there is an absence of of LGBT plus people and so I think standing out and saying you're a gay black man is significant because that is a a crossover where experiences can be very different and I think you know added into that are things like class that's another element of intersectionality um and your, your kind of socioeconomic upbringing that that those all those factors play into to elements of identity and how you can position yourself in in society or in the world and you know you know you might get an even different experience if you add another intersection if you have a black female LGBT plus person 
their experience of the world, it, it might be different to how I negotiate things as a, you know, as a cis black man. Um, and I think it's important to have a recognition of it because people are very, can very easily lumber people into categories and just say, well, that's, you're gay or you're this or you're that. And I, I mean, I, I remember once somebody said to me, oh, can you come and speak to us about this, about LGBT issues? And I said, well, actually, there's a bit of a problem with that because you'd probably need to have, I can only speak as a gay black man as my, as my experience, but I think you probably need to have a trans person. You probably need to have a bi and or lesbian person, um, a non-binary person, because I think that in itself is, is, is kind of almost, um, demonstrative of people try, not almost trying to forget about other elements of things. And I suppose intersectionality means having been properly grounded in how how, people, how different people have different experiences. Not, so, you know, I, I look towards, say, you know, I, I think as a, as a kid, it's, it's probably a bit easier because you just see yourself as, as being black. But as you as you get older and you you know you come out, um, there is a bit of a almost a bit of a, a wall in one sense because I, I could I didn't I couldn't name any black gay people as a kid, and those that you could think of had had horrible experiences. So you know, you know Justin Fashnu, for example, is a, is, the, is the obvious example or somebody who you know died by suicide as a result of you know horrible circumstances and I think now that there's a kind of a much more there's much more positivity in being able to celebrate who people are that means having to looking at all intersections and not just kind of like um airbrushing things and uh, you know I often say this in in these kind of forums um I have a friend called Dr. Ronks, and they are a trans non-binary doctor, TV doctor. And they always say, you know, you cannot be what you do not see. I think it's so apt, actually, when you look at those kind of things. And, and they often say to me, look, look I'm, I'm a trans non-binary doctor, black doctor of Nigerian heritage. If I could have had somebody to look up to as a kid who was either A, trans non-binary, B, a doctor, see a, a black doctor at least been able to see somebody who might look like who I want to be and so you know it, you know it's, it can always come back to back to representation can kind of come full circle and I suppose that's why it's so important I think to acknowledge it and I think at the bar there is it's been lacking for so long that you know we often look at underrepresented groups at the bar but you've got to look at it holistically in one sense and so you've got to look at the factors which go towards particular issues rather than just going well we've got 30% who have applied from Oxbridge um but then like break you've got to break down the figures and look at what are the class backgrounds what are the what are the um what's their you know ethnic ethnic heritage or those kind of factors and so I think it, it just means being a bit more critical being having a much more critical eye and I think we're, we're getting there but again it's it's glacial at times it feels. State House Chambers is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy 
in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This recording is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or for any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Gatehouse Chambers or by Gatehouse Chambers as a whole.